You're listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the show for public relations professionals who are ready to see real change in the PR industry. We are your hosts, April Margulies and Laura Schooler. Let's get ready to wind down. Happy Halloween from the PR Wind Down team. If you loved our Halloween episode last year, you are in for a treat. The Halloween special is back from the grave. We are serving up some frightfully good tricks of the trade this week. So grab a brew (laughs) and get ready for back-to-back PR horror stories and a deep dive into the scariest tales from the news media this week. All right, so should we start with a horror story since we have multiple horror stories? Okay, scary story number one. Hey, PR wind down goddesses. One of my best friends is someone I met at a former agency job. We just instantly clicked and were fast friends as if we'd always known each other. Our close-knit friendship was deepened by the fact we sat across the hall from each other and all of our work was intrinsically interdependent. And we went through the same trials and tribulations and fires. The two of us were thick as thieves. We'd often go to lunch together or go get coffee together. And we were usually inwardly or outwardly giggling about some inside joke or scenario in lockstep. Although we were both straight girls, we started to be seen as a couple by our boss. (laughs) And we sometimes even joked about being work wives. This all became super awkward one day when we were in a meeting with a prospect and our boss introduced us as a couple. (laughs) oh my god and correcting him would have made things even more awkward it didn't help that i had a stereotypically butch haircut at the time either (laughs) it was the first time but not the only time he'd do this on another occasion he even joked to a client that i was a dominatrix (laughs) this particular incident was made even more awkward by the fact that he left the meeting abruptly and very early, as usual, leaving us there to bask alone in the uncomfortable situation he's just created. (laughs) For the rest of the meeting, I wondered whether he really believed that or just fantasized it was true, (laughs) which made me even more uncomfortable as the meeting went on. Given that it was all in good fun and seemed like such a minor incident, I didn't report anything to HR. After listening to the podcast, I'm sure at least Laura would agree this was a good move. (laughs) But what should you do in a situation like this if it makes you truly uncomfortable? All right, well, I got to say, when I talk about not going to HR, it's not about issues like this. This is actually kind of thing you should go to HR. (laughs) When I say don't go to HR, it's about like your own personal job or your salary or how your boss is treating you, but not when it comes to weird sexual harassment type issues, you know? And I don't know where this falls. It's not sexual harassment, but it is inappropriate for the workplace. If it was even a man or a woman, a straight couple, why are you introducing your client as like, this is a couple? And- The fact is, I feel like 
this guy, I'm assuming was a male boss, right? Would not have introduced them as a couple if they had been a heterosexual couple. And so that makes it even more awkward and weird. The reason why he was doing it was because he thought or hoped that they were lesbians. <laughs> I think that when you're young and maybe even when you're old, it's hard to confront, but like the boss should be confronted. Like what, dude, what are you talking about? And why are you doing that in front of a client? Like we're not a couple, we're friends and we work together. And even if we were a couple, that's not your business or the client's business and it's irrelevant. Right. So I, I think that that's what. So is this the happen. only horror story where you said go to HR? No, I think I've said go to HR about, you know, harassment type claims. When I say they're useless is what I'm talking, like I said, about your job because your boss wants to fire you. That ship has already sailed or your salary isn't high enough. Like HR ain't going to help you. Right. But with this kind of stuff, they actually have to help you because it's probably legal liability. Yeah. That's my jam on this one. Yeah. I mean, if you imagine being in that situation and that's happening, right. You can only imagine that that must be the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. So it does beg the question of whether or not that's a battle you want to fight. So if it's one of those things you can kind of laugh off, then maybe leave it alone. But if it really does truly, as a question was posed, make you truly uncomfortable, then yeah, I think Laura's right. You just got to take it to HR, assuming that this is the worst incident. <laughs> I mean, you know, given that if that's happening, what else is happening? But if it is, then it is. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a, what, what a way to kick off Halloween. <laughs> All right, what should we tackle next? Do you want to get into a PR news of the week story? Sure, what do we got? Break it up. So we have a story about AT&T CEO being unhappy with his own company's brand. So Laura, do you want to do the honors and explain what the details of the story are? So AT&T CEO John Stanky <laughs> says he's not satisfied with his company's own brand. AT&T's had a lot of branding blunders in the past years, and he wants to focus on the core wireless service as he separates DirecTV and Warner Media from AT&T. Stanky, because his name is Stanky. <laughs> okay, so, so that's the scariest part of the story? He's looking ahead, and he doesn't feel like the brand is well, you know, well positioned. I did not know this, but AT&T Wireless has fallen behind Verizon and T-Mobile in terms of the number of subscribers after T-Mobile acquired Sprint. So I get it now. They need to, like when I worked for PwC, it was, they said the brand was old, old fashioned. It was navy blue and white. It was very, you know, white guy from Britain sort of thing. And, you know, in the 1930s. So they totally revised the whole look and feel of the brand. And along with that, you know, you have to do other things too. It's not like, again, not just about a logo or the color of pens that you hand out at a, a conference or whatever. It, you have to infiltrate it with some real brand identities, brand messages, brand, the way you function as a company, et cetera, all of those things. 
right now they're talking about there's been a lot of confusion. I don't think I knew that AT&T owned all those companies, right? There was a blunder that they're talking about debuting HBO Max mm. while HBO Go and HBO still existed. So it was a lot of confusion. It also changed the name of its DirecTV Now streaming service to AT&T TV Now, which is a separate product from AT&T TV. I mean, they own so many things. I think somebody needs to like come in and look at the whole universe of all the things that they own. And it seems to me like they've been naming things like ad hoc almost like, you know, are you picking off of the a la carte menu when you should be designing a whole universe? Right. You know, everybody knows AT&T, but does anybody know what they stand for anymore? I only Um, think of them for wireless. Well, right. I've had AT&T wireless since my first cell phone and it has not been a great service, but I've never wanted to change because I think, you know, they're all kind of cruddy and it would have caused problems. I thought what you were going to say is that you think it's funny that he thinks the company has a branding issue when his name is Stanky. (laughs) The company's branding is Stanky. (laughs) No, but also that that you're going to say his personal brand needs work. So it's ironic that he's saying his company. I know. Well, it's funny. I keep thinking of Spanky when I say Stanky. So not only is it stinky, it's spanky. It's spanky from Little Rascals or something. It's just a crazy, it's a crazy, hilarious last name. What was he going to do? Change his name? So I just think there's such a great opportunity here for like a creative agency or somebody to come in and be like, look, they need a brand. Yeah, right. We need to look at the universe of your products, what you're trying to achieve in the next five years, the next 10 years, what to retire, how to bring it all together how to roll it out, how to deploy it, how to talk about it. You know, do you it's a need big to- big job. Right, it's a huge job, but like what a job it could be for a certain kind of agency right. or Absolutely. ad agency, branding company. I don't know, it could be. So it is scary that a company that was the clear leader in all of this stuff is falling behind. And, you know, you wonder, is it a chicken or egg? Is it falling behind because the branding is so weak? Or is the branding weak because the company is already weak and so nobody's, you know, they haven't been watching the store. Mm-hmm. What caused what? What's indicative of what? If they want to be like a lot of these companies, I mean, whether or not they would admit it, want to be like the Googles and Facebooks, et cetera, of the world, like they totally have to get their toes, feet, whatever, out of, you know, the 1980s. What That's my question sound. is, why would he tell this to a reporter in an interview. It's not a really great look for... I mean, from a PR perspective, that's where I'm horrified. (laughs) That's what scares me. How does this serve him? Unless... Does he want his shareholders to understand that he's aware that there's work to be done? It's the only explanation I can come up with that makes any sense. It's the only explanation. Maybe. Unless he just accidentally shared this Otherwise, I don't get it. I don't get what the point of airing your duty laundry like that is. But I think you probably nailed it. It's the only rational explanation other than an accident. You know, it could be that he did an introductory interview to talk about something else and he said this offhand. <laughs> and it was like, then it became the whole it story. It became the whole story, which would suck. That just happens. I mean, it definitely could be what happened. How much does he look like an older, slightly less dashing Don Draper? Oh my God, that's you funny. You see it? The mouth. Yes. The mouth. Yes. <laughs> that's it's so like, funny. Huh. It's very funny. 
I mean, he's still a nice looking man. Isn't yeah, but you know what? Nobody can look quite as good as John Draper. No. What's his real name? John Ham. John Ham. John Stanky. Maybe it is John Ham. <laughs> With a mask on, playing the CEO. With the balding thing. Yeah, so John Stanky, just shave it all. Like, just get rid of it. Now you're just being mean. No, I'm trying to help him <laughs> with his personal branding. <laughs> okay. okay. Should, we, should we move on to horror story number two? Certainly. Okay. I will do the honors of this one. Okay. <clears throat> Scary story number two. It was a day, just like any other day, and I secured a bylined article opportunity for a client. It was all normal. The editor at this little trade pub reviewed my initial pitch and abstract. He said my pitch was great, but not a fit, and that he considered some alternatives. Took some heavy brainstorming, but I worked with my manager to craft three alternative angles, each complete with thorough abstracts for consideration. After some back and forth, the editor selected one of the articles and gave me a list of writing guidelines and a deadline. Two days before the deadline, I submitted the client's completed, reviewed, and approved draft. No answer. Three days. Then... The editor replied to me with this scary email saying the draft was terrible and I should never submit something so awful to a serious publication. I was shocked. The byline was the same quality of others I'd worked on for that client and we followed the approved abstract to a T. I checked and all of the links and the technical requirements were fine too. I replied asking for specific feedback and saying I'd be happy to have the draft updated so it would meet the editorial standards. Silence. I followed up a few days later offering to get on the phone and discuss revisions. We'd worked hard on the draft, 2,000 words, and I wanted to salvage it. This time, I got a message blocked by sender notice. <gasps> Yikes. What did I do wrong? Okay, so this is horrifying, truly. Oh, this is scary. It is scary. It actually is scary. So my initial question would be to this person, or if it were me in this situation, which thank God it was not, sorry to this person that was them. I would want to see if I actually attached the right draft. Did I accidentally oh. send them the wrong version? That's interesting. And I didn't realize I attached the wrong thing. That would be my first assumption was that I attached the wrong thing, knowing that it's the same quality as every other byline that I've written or overseen, written and submitted. That's really interesting that you like totally sense a wrong version or something different entirely. Who knows? All right. I like that. I mean, I mean, I imagine this person checked, but so let's pretend they checked okay. and it was the right version. It's hard to say because I don't know what the topic was, what the publication is. You know what I mean? So well, you said tiny. Oh, right. I was thinking like, is this the Harvard Business Review or something? No, it's like a little tree publication where they're right. usually not very particular. And the fact that they liked the initial idea pitch. So it was like the pitch was great, it says. So obviously that was not like written crazy. And then the editor said it was terrible and I should never submit something so awful to a serious publication. God. I don't know like what else you could do. I mean, it could be somebody that's like got a mental disorder of some kind or a mood disorder and it's like just hit them at the wrong time at the wrong day. And, and this the editor blocked them. 
I mean, I mean, that's extreme. Honestly, there's not really anything you can do other than try to find another editor at that publication and just say, hey, I'm so sorry. I don't know what we did wrong, but I'd love to know as a learning for next time, we really want to have a partnership with your publication and this client, you know, it means a lot to them. Is there anything I can do? I mean, I think that's yeah. the, it's, I think that the you only have to option. To another, another person at that publication. It's the only option. Maybe, I don't, and again, I don't know what the trade is. I don't know what the topic was, but maybe there was something that offended the person who was reading that's what it for I'm some wondering. reason. I'm not accusing anybody. People get offended over the craziest things these days. So mm-hmm. that's the only other thing I could think of. Yeah, I agree with that. Because I'm just taking this person at their word that it was like, you know, a normal solid article yeah and why you would get treated like you you know wrote something on like the toilet paper and you know threw it at them at their head or something it's just bizarre unless there's some industry specific detail that you overlook like some fundamentally wrong thing that you didn't realize was wrong and the client didn't either that that editor because of their specific knowledge of construction or logistics or electronics or <laughs> like hr you know if there was some thing in the article that showed a lack of understanding of some industry specific right. detail that was offensive you know that's the only other guess i have but if you discovered that you sent the wrong article that would have been good to include in note number two before you got blocked right i think one was like, here's, here's a pitch. They said, it's great, but not really for us. Then they redid it and sent it. So that was number two was when they got like screamed at. And then they wrote back again to say, well, can we discuss it? And I guess that was when they realized they had been blocked. So yeah, it sounds like they were blocked after like getting yelled at after number two. Okay. So then it wouldn't have worked anyway. But if you discovered you set the wrong version, then I think you have to go to another editor. That's a bummer. That's scary. It's good for Halloween, though. <laughs> All right. Should we move on to our second news story? Our scary news story? Yes. Our second scary news story of the day is about yeah. Instagram pausing its plan to develop a platform for kids after criticism. I mean, who thought that was a good idea to begin with? <laughs> This should never have been a news story. In other I words, mean, teenagers and young people are like committing suicide over social media. And I think Instagram is one of the leading causes of. So let's lower the age. Let's make, you know, 10 year olds feel horrible about themselves. Well, that's a great idea. Yeah. I was just talking to a prospect today about this and mm-hmm. he was saying, yeah, we're totally going to trust that there's no pedophiles joining the tween version of Instagram since right. all the Facebook's content moderating rules and hacks are working flawlessly. So this announcement follows an investigative series by the Wall Street Journal that reported Facebook was aware that the use of Instagram by some teenage girls had led to mental health issues and anxiety, which is what I was basically saying without having to read the Wall Street Journal. Duh. Right. So I think, you know, lawmakers got involved in asking Facebook to abandon this idea. Opposition, you know, came out immediately and Facebook was exploring a parent controlled experience 
because you know how parents can really control what their kids do, especially at two o'clock in the morning in their own bedrooms, you know, with their phones under their pillow. I mean, it's crazy. You know, you've got the fact that Facebook is not really known for protecting, well, anybody, but children on its platforms. I mean, like I said, it's not gone real great for adults. Why do we think this is going to be a good thing to do for children? I feel like there's so many things that with every decade or generation, whatever, like more and more sort of loss of childhood, the loss of innocence, the whatever has come into play. Kids are introduced to too much. They know too much and they can't process it because they're too young. I can't even every, imagine peer pressure in well, a exactly. digital context. I mean, it was hard enough just to be a kid without that. I am so happy social media did not exist when I was a kid. I know. I no wonder kids are having so many problems. I've been talking to parents just this weekend about like big, big issues that kids are having these days. And they're so out of the realm of what I even approached. And so much of it, and I know, is competitiveness, not only between kids, but between parents. Oh, yeah. Parents were always competing with each other through their kids. Even back in my day, it's just another out of control platform for parents to compete with other parents in my mind. And it's always one parent and then two parents and then everybody's parent who lets their kids do things that aren't age appropriate. And then everybody's got to let their kids do it because all the kids say, well, but you know, Lisa and Johnny can do it or Susie and Mindy can do it. Why can't I? And you know, and parents always end up giving in almost always. And if they don't give in, well, I was going to say, if they don't give in, then their kids are like, you know, weirdo social pariahs. I mean, it's a really hard position, right, to be in. I somehow found myself in the middle of it all. And so I just was weird. You know, that was my solution. I just won't even play this game. I'll do my own game and like it or not like it. What kind of weird? What version? Goth weird? Sort of a rock and roll. Not like punk. More like new wave chick. Okay. I guess. I can see that. Yeah, that's what it was. But, you know, I played sports too. Yeah. So I was wearing like this whole get up and then I would change and I'd be in pinstripes playing softball, second base. But people were okay with it. Like I didn't get shit for it. This is my funny story of myself. It's like a pretty in pink moment or something. So when you're a junior or senior, you don't have study hall anymore. You had free period and you could go to the library or to the cafeteria or to the like a couple of rooms in the school or you could go outside so you walked out and all the kids and a lot of them were my friends whatever they'd sit in like a circle on the ground and they'd be passing like cigarettes or probably pot in a tight circle so the like teachers couldn't see what they were doing but I didn't smoke I wasn't drink. I wasn't doing drugs I wasn't drinking whatever but one day I decided it was a nice day and I'm in one of my get-ups and I'm gonna walk outside at my free period. And I walk, I open the door and I walk outside and there's like this, you know, I'm probably a senior and there's a circle of people and like somebody looks up at me and they're like, hey, Laura. And I'm like, what? They're like, have you ever been out here before? And I'm like, no, and it's stupid. I'm going back inside now. And I turned around and I went back inside and everybody, ha ha ha. Like nobody gave me crap for it. Interesting. I never got involved in that stuff. And people would, I realized later, even keep me from it. It was like, I was like the good girl on the inside. The the infiltrated. Yes. 
anyway, so I guess my whole point is that my solution to all of the pressures of what you're supposed to be like and look like and the parents, you know, whatever, I was just like, I'm not even going to play this game. I'm going to play my own game and try to beat me at that mother effers. And, you know, nobody could. Oh, it's exactly <laughs> the same. It's so funny. People are like, did you see what Laura was wearing to the prom or whatever, you know? And I'm sure people kind of talk shit, but I think most people just were like, oh my God, I can't wait to see what she comes up with this time. <laughs> it was like 1950 in my town in many ways, you know? But my point is I understand how hard it is because 16 years old as a girl is a horrible time. It's a horrible. And to have then been able to share photos and videos of each other and you know people are going to share photos of you that you don't want people to see and they're going to make up stories and it's going to be horrible and it, you could get a reputation that you did not even earn what's the advertising saying that teenage girls are the ultimate victims and the ultimate gatekeepers of popular culture is that from is that from killing us softly i don't know i don't know if i've ever heard that but that's yes so interesting yeah the whole Instagram kids thing also reminds me of that movie that we talked about earlier this year called Cuties. Oh, right. Did you ever see that? Yes, I did watch it. You watched it? Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, certainly not who we want running our society, that's for sure. And there's a whole other level of like, you know, gender identity now that didn't exist right then. Back then it was kind of like, is somebody gay? But that wasn't even talked about so much. But just the sexuality and does he like me? Does he not like me? I'm not pretty enough. Should I hook up with him? How much should I allow this kid? So much of that is wrapped up. And now oh, yeah. you've got kids who are like, am I male? Am I female? Am I neither? Am I both? Am I, you know, I, I, it's my head explodes. I'm so not somebody who can talk about it. I don't, I'm not educated enough, but throw that in the mix. And I mean, ugh. No, terrible. Yeah, I was anorexic because it was in high school and I wasn't even like a heavy girl. Right. But everything I saw in magazines, and that was just magazines. And then the girls started calling me thunder thighs because I had these big muscular basketball legs. <sighs> that trauma lives with you forever. It's forever. Horrible. I cannot imagine. Yeah. Imagine if how being much woo whizzing around on Instagram. Social? Oh my God. I could barely handle you know, the girls in class who got best legs because I was thunder thighs. And then somebody like boys make lists of who's the hottest girl or like, what's the best legs? Why was that? Yeah. Kayla had best legs. I oh still my God. remember. Even no, and, then I, and then I was, was like, happening. right. No. And I was looking and I was like, how do I have thighs like Kayla? Like, how do I? How oh, do I I'll just stop eating. So I cannot imagine. I'm very glad that this is not moving forward. I think. And in, in summary, I mean, can't kids just get on regular Instagram though? How's that? Are you 18? Yeah. Do they address this in here? I mean, I don't know. Instagram isn't marketed to kids now. Everything's marketed to kids though. Let's be, you know, liquor, drugs, every, you know, cigarette, whatever, uh, e-cigarettes, vaping. It's all really marketed to kids. So maybe they say it's not, but it probably already is. But at least it's not overtly being like, hey kids, or, and how young are we talking about seven-year-olds? It's going to be like infants competing for like, you know, best dressed nine-month-old. I mean, a lot of parents don't even let their kids get on social media until they're older. Yeah, but I feel like kids always find a way, right? So the head of Instagram, 
Adam Ostery said in an interview with NBC's Today Show that the company still believes it's better for children under 13 to have a specific platform for age-appropriate content, and that other companies like TikTok and YouTube have app versions for that age group. Then he said in a blog post that it's better to have a version of Instagram where parents can supervise and control their experience rather than relying on the company's ability to verify if kids are old enough to use the app. So he said that Instagram for kids is meant to be for those between the ages of 10 and 12, not younger. That's a lot of work to put into an app for that narrow of an age category. Mm -hmm. And it says it will require parental permission to join, be ad-free, and will include age-appropriate content and features. Parents will be able to supervise the time their children spend on the app, oversee who can message them, and can follow them and who they follow. But if you're a parent, do you really want to be involved in all this? I mean, aren't parents busy enough and burdens enough? Like this is going to be some other thing that they're responsible for. Women, I guess men too, but women who work, you know, full-time jobs and who knows what. Now they're going to be like chasing their kids around on Instagram too. I mean, good God. It's, it's like cigarettes back in the day, right? When they were marketing to kids. Hook them young and then you'll have them for life. So they want to hook them young and get all their, you know, information, whatever information they could get out of it for advertising purposes and the brands that can get in there to advertise and stuff will hook these kids from the day they're born and they're going to grow up needing to buy a Mercedes or whatever it is, you know? Well, the other issue is that people are already being held accountable for things that they did in high school. Like, oh, right. What's their face? Try to run for office. Right. Or even actresses who... Right, who was, or the, the woman um, who was supposed to be the head of Teen Vogue. Or the, the chick who was the secretary in the office, um, the redhead, Ellie Kempner. Oh, right. What happened to her? I don't think I heard that. Something that she did in high school was a part of some club, and it was found out later that it had KKK ties in some sort of roundabout way and became this huge scandal recently on social media. So, I mean, the other thing that's terrifying is that what if you do something when you're 10 mm-hmm. that haunts you right. for the rest of your life? Right. So that's spooky. Yeah, that's really spooky. That's, I wasn't even thinking that. That's one of the worst aspects of it, if you ask me. I don't even know what I did at 10. I don't remember who I was. I don't remember what I was doing. I don't remember anything I wrote. A lot of people don't remember anything when they were 16 or 17 either. I so. don't remember anybody I was friends with. Like, I don't know what that would look like. But if somebody could, oh, when she was 10 on Instagram, she posted. She was friends with this bad person when she was, you know, roller skating in the backyard or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> roller skating I agree. in the backyard. Yeah. It's bad. Now that I say that out loud, that part actually scares me the most. Yeah, me too. Now that you say it out loud, that's the that worst That and the part. pedophile stuff scares me the most. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, are parents really wanting to chase their kids around Instagram? No. What if you're somebody who's got three or four kids? <laughs> it's crazy. No. Okay. Should the world we... should be run by Planet of the Apes and kitties. Mm, I disagree. With, the, but... with an occasional goat. Okay, maybe. Should we move on to horror story number three? Yes. Do you want to do the honors? I will do the dishonor. Scary story number three. 
One time I was vying for a position at a pretty exclusive PR agency. To get a permanent job, I had to reach a certain set of goals over 90 days unpaid, at which point they'd offer me a job, maybe if I was good enough. What? Hello, dangling carrot. I was new in town and I was in desperate need of a new gig and I only had AC level experience. So it was tough enough just to get an interview. TLDR, I was desperate. Oh, I already said that. A few weeks into my trial period, the agency hired a new guy to be in charge of marketing for the firm as SVP of marketing. He quickly became the CEO's right hand and you couldn't even talk to the CEO anymore without going through him. He was an abrasive, bombastic dude with a flair for making people uncomfortable with his crude jokes and demeaning attitude. But it seemed like the CEO loved him and needed his help. Oh, geez, this is just great. On top of my PR tasks for that tough hiring track I was on, I started getting assignments to help this new marketing guy out. Pretty soon, I was working full-time hours for zero pay. I was pretty much at the beckoned call of marketing guy, scrambling to get my PR work done too. I just had to hang tight and wait for my trial period to end, right? One day before my trial period and final review, marketing guy cornered me in his office for a, quote, check-in. He said he wanted to, quote, head off the PR SVP and poach me for his own department. I was stunned. I had been working all along on these goals to get hired as a PR person. I didn't want to risk my long-term job offer, so I said no thanks and mentioned it in my review the next day. My supervisor looked surprised but brushed it off, and I did get an offer. This was a Friday. Then Monday came. Turns out they were just about to fire this marketing guy. Apparently he had been a total fraud all along. His (gasps) credentials weren't real. And all that extra work I was taking on from him was just a part of a larger issue of him passing everything off to other junior colleagues. He didn't know what he was doing and was trying to spread the workout so nobody would notice. If I had taken his offer and canceled my PR review, I would have been out the door with him. That's it. Well, it was a potentially scary story. That's one of those things you're like, oh my God, that could have been the worst decision. Yeah, you dodged the the bullet. Yeah, man, people are fraudulent and it's kind of scary that people like that are so um, adept at what they do that they're able to like become a CEO's second and then they turn out to be completely fraudulent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just, and especially if you're, you know, a young person, like you're not going to have had much experience with people. So you might not be able to, you know, read the room right, for yourself. But this person did ish. I mean, half luck, half kind of intuition, I think. Well, it's a good reminder to make sure that you have an offer in writing before you say anything to your existing situation because that that. we've talked about that before but they really dodged a bullet by the fact that they found out before it was too late and they had (laughs) well they didn't find out though they didn't find out what do you mean they didn't find out beforehand i didn't follow this what the person got the offer on a Friday didn't find out that the CEO's 
second was a fraud until Monday. Oh my. So they made the right decision, half luck, half maybe deep down intuition or partially because they also wanted to be a PR, not yeah, yeah. a not supporting marketing. role. But they didn't know it until afterwards. So they could have said yes to Mr. CEO's second right-hand man, dude, whatever. But they luckily didn't. The problem is with those kinds of people that are so convincing, you don't know that they're a sham until you know they're a sham. But what I will say is the more life experience you have, if you if you found out that person A ultimately in the end was like X, and then you meet person B in the future, and you say, ah, person B reminds me a lot of person A. Don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Just trust that just trust that there's a reason that your intuition made that connection and just treat it as though it's gonna end up the same way. Because I have made that mistake multiple times with clients, with hiring. If somebody like pings off of some thing in you that reminds you of another person that burned you. Believe it. Yeah. Believe it. Just believe it. Don't stick around to find out why they remind you of that thing, of that person, of that situation. Just trust it. Go with it. And so next time this person meets somebody that reminds them of marketing, dude, just trust that you're dealing with somebody that's got similar traits. And you can put that into your personal life as well. Yes. Maybe oh, yeah. One day. Maybe one oh, day I'll, I'll learn it. I've made dating mistakes in the same direction, too shut it down before i even knew why but there's no reason to stick around and find out why what we do to ourselves i know so i'm very happy for this person that they dodged the bullet yes the bigger lesson here is that everybody is out for themselves so you got to put yourself first and this person did that they were like i want to be a pr person and they stuck to their guns and it paid off. If you're true to yourself, you will stay on the right path for yourself. Right. Should we wrap it up? I think I'm full of horror stories for one day. Thank you so much for tuning in for the PR Wind Down Halloween podcast. It's been a scream. Please remember to like, rate, and share our podcast with the guys and ghouls in your life. We'd love to hear from you at the email address in our show notes if you're feeling inspired to share a horror story of your own. We can't wait to wind down with you again next time.